This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Don't let another day go by, my love. It'll be just like starting Safe to say, General Electric definitely starting over another new strategy. And at least what investors heard today, they seem to be pretty happy. Shares of GE rallying right now. They're up about mm, just shy of 3%. New boss Larry Cole pledging a rebound in cash flow next year after a reset in 2019. Brooke Sutherland following this story for us. She is deals and industrial uh, industrials columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Um, is it a real reset? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think they are trying to paint it that way. And I will say, you know, they did not strip out all of the adjustments from their earnings numbers, which I know is something that analysts and investors are really hoping to see. Because they want to understand, clear, right? Right. Um, but they did go out of their way to sort of call out what the biggest puts and takes were there. And they did disclose cash flow on a unit basis, which I think is a really key step as far as transparency and understanding this company's trajectory going forward. Um, As far as whether it's a fundamental reset, I think that very much remains to be seen. So we know that 2019 is going to be negative as far as industrial free cash flow. Now, they've said they expect growth in 2020 and 21. They've used a variety of different adjectives. Yes. To describe that meaningful, significant uh, and I will say that doesn't really mean all that much to me, because if you're growing off of a negative number, I I, I don't know what that means. Um, And so I think, you know, there's a lot of things that still need to go right and a lot of things we still need to understand to sort of plot out what GE's recovery looks like. Um, The one question I have is, you know, sort of given the parameters that Moody's has laid out, the, the you know sort of color and the numbers that we got today would suggest a cash flow situation that's significantly weaker within what Moody's was looking for. So mm. that brings back the question of whether or not you might see any sort of credit rating cut. It's funny you sort of imagine them sitting around and trying to sort of wordsmith this thing and like getting the th- <laughs> thesaurus out and being like, okay, we said meaningful, we said significant. What else can we say? Market? Can we say market? Um, you know, as you say, there is some skepticism out there. Help us understand the context of what we've seen even over the past couple months in terms of some of these divestitures, the decisions to spin off, not spin off certain units. How do you sort of synthesize that with what we heard today? Because as you say, we're starting to at least get a little bit more transparency. As you get that transparency, what are you seeing sort of underneath the hood? Right. Well, so one of the surprises today was that they said that the dispositions that they've done so far, so that's the industrial solutions, the uh, value-based care from healthcare, and most notably the transportation division, will deduct about $200 million off of the 2018 free cash flow base. Now, they'd previously thrown out a benchmark of $1.2 billion, which is what I think a lot of analysts have been plugging into their models. Now, they say because of the timing of the way that all those divestitures work out, that's a big reason why you're seeing that lower number. But also because those assets that were divested weren't as cash flow positive as they had expected. Mm. So I think that is rather telling just in terms of the way that this company has been historically operated. But as 
far as like going forward, I think you're starting to really see why they needed to keep healthcare in the fold. That business is a strong cash flow generator and getting rid of it would have made this a much more complicated story and left you with two very long cycle businesses. So let me make sure I understand what you just said, which is essentially that these businesses that they're getting rid of weren't actually contributing as much as maybe people thought. Right. Yeah. And that's on the, as far as the transportation yeah. and the industrial solutions and, and some of those other ones. Um, most notably transportation, yeah. I think, is the one really to pull out there. But healthcare is still a strong cash, a cash generator, engine, yeah. but they are selling that life sciences business. And so they've said that they expect the core healthcare business, the diagnostics, the imaging, to improve cash flow generation. But I had an interview with CFO Jamie Miller earlier today, and she said that's not going to be enough to make up for the roughly what analysts estimate to be a $1 billion that they're losing from life sciences. You do, just like you said, they were figuring out what words to use. I do feel like they're like, okay, it's so a, here's the numbers, but that's the cash flow and that, okay, no, we need that in order to go forward so investors are happy. I have to say, though, what blows my mind still a little bit is, you know, including obstacles, you're talking about $25 billion in borrowing that matures in 2020. That's just around the corner. So that credit downgrade would make that more expensive going forward, right, if they have to rework it. I mean, can they manage that debt? I, you know, so they do have sources of cash. Um, yeah. They are bringing cash in the door. Obviously, the the life sciences is probably the most significant. That deal with Danaher for twenty one point four billion dollars. Um, I, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see what the credit rating firms do yeah. with this. Um, they have historically had a habit of sort of moving the goalposts uh, yeah. for GE and sort of being very patient. Um, more so than perhaps the straight. I was going to say, and more so than uh, equity investors have been uh, of late, for sure. Brooke Sutherland, deals and industrials columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, follows this more closely than anyone I know. So does great it, to catch up with. Just you. quickly though, does the twenty-one billion wipe out the twenty-five billion in debt? No, it's not a, exactly a, a one okay. for one. Just because they also have these liabilities of GE Capital that they have to fund, like the insurance and, and things like that. A lot that, of moving so. parts. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Brooke. Thank you so much. All right, Carol. Yeah. Okay, Jason. I think you know <laughs> I like to talk about private equity. You do indeed. And there's a lot going on in the world of private equity right now, which is so why we're so happy to have Andrea Auerbach. She's global head of private investments at Cambridge Associates. She's based in Boston, but here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You sit, you and your firm sit in the middle of all of this. You work with some of the biggest firms uh, in the world, advising investors on strategies, who to, who to invest with, et cetera. You've got the catbird seat. So what's going on right now? I'm two weeks back from Berlin where all the talk was about dry powder, all this money uh, going in. Where's it going? Help us understand where it's going because you guys just did – an analysis of this. Yes, uh, we've uh, the level of dry powder, the overhang, if you will, which we were the we were the first to define. If I might just make a little point hey, about that, nice. uh, many years ago. But the the amount of dry powder hanging over the industry is the largest it's ever been, and most of it, I think, almost three hundred billion of the dry powder that we're tracking is held in funds of five billion or more. So they actually have the largest amount of capital, and I would say it's the more money, more problems challenge for large cap private equity um, because there aren't as many larger companies for them to acquire. And they also have a they have a time limit with within which they have to put that money to work. Usually five years, which is kind of wild that they're still raising money, <laughs> right? There are new funds that are coming out and pretty significant funds in terms of sizing. Yes, I mean, so right now we're really at um, we're really at uh, either the the uh, the um, 
the market is definitely spinning like a top right now, yeah. and the velocity of fundraising is probably peaking. And that I, I feel like, given we're so late, late into the cycle, that a lot of the GPs are, are thinking, mm, I need to raise money now because once the markets start to reverberate, the industry is going to go back to the 08 era and go on lockdown, and I won't have money to deploy at the bottom. So I think that's feeding into a that's bit of the fundraising cycle. All right. So, got to talk about the news of the week because it really helped us get a sense of where the industry is going, or at least where part of the industry is going on the high end. Brookfield Oak Tree getting together in a rather unexpected deal, not shocking in some ways, um, but you are seeing the big get bigger and bigger. You think about Blackstone and now Brookfield and some of the other uh, household names. What does that amount of consolidation or that type of consolidation mean for investors going forward? Right. So so I think the thing that we tend to keep in mind quite a bit is that the institutionalization of private equity, we're, we're only 30-something years into that, into that era. And so in some ways, this level of merging or partnering, which is this is not the first time this has happened across the private equity landscape, mm-hmm. um, but this level of, of merging and partnering, is it's somewhat a little bit right on time. And in terms of what does this mean for investors? Well, obviously, you, you can still consider the strategies of both of those managers on an independent and individual basis. But I would, I would point out there are easily 5,000 private equity firms walking around in North America. So you are really spoiled for choice if you know where to look to find the managers capable of delivering the kind of return you're seeking. So we're just talking about two out of a vast universe of options. Well, and I am curious about the other side in terms of the investor side. Is it becoming a broader base in terms of folks investing in things that are, you know, in the private universe, private equity and else yeah. and other things? No, it, I mean, look, with with the returns of private equity being what they are, they do tend to stand head and shoulders above more publicly liquid strategies. It continues to attract capital. And so capital raising in 2018 hit a peak, um, all-time peak, even over the 07 height, right? $454 billion was raised globally, private equity, growth equity, and venture capital. And so what we, are, what we are seeing is that there continues to be interest, and that interest is really looking for a home. And there are implications for that, because if you have too much supply of capital in some mm-hmm. space, prices get bid up, returns get a lot harder to generate. And you really need you need you need to do the truffle hunting to find the managers that can do what you need them to do. So let's talk about that because, as you say, this ultimately just comes down to returns. People want to make money; they want to make a lot of money, and they want to make more money than they can elsewhere. It's just that simple. How much divergence is there? Because you guys see the whole spectrum mm-hmm. of those five thousand just in the U.S. alone. How much divergence is there from the best and the rest? Right. So in terms of um, the delta. So what you're looking at is the the typical dispersion of return between the, let's call it the A-plus manager in global private equity and the median manager, sort of the C-grade, pass-fail manager in private equity. It's roughly 1,700 basis points, right? Wow. So if the median return in private equity is is 11%-ish net to LP, and if you find the right manager and invest with that manager, you can earn 1,700 basis points better than that, where do I go? Where do I sign up? Yeah. Right. yeah. And, hey. ha- and how do I get into those big names? 
Mm. Hey, I just want to mention a quick headline crossing the Bloomberg. This has to do with some news out of Washington. Uh, the Senate voting to block President Trump's declaration of a national emergency to pay for that border wall with Mexico, of course. So this is really, Jason, setting up uh, for the president's first veto, which is expected and really highlighting a growing willingness by Republicans in the chamber to split with their president. And this is something that we're seeing growing momentum uh, as well. Uh, it is interesting. Um, you know, we were talking to about the political speaking of things coming out of Washington as the private equity universe continues to grow. We do wonder about more oversight coming of this industry from Washington. What do you see and hear on that front? I, I, what I would say is, look, um, the returns of private equity continue to attract capital. We're in an era where there's more transparency around around investments. And so is private equity really has has private equity really ever been that private is an interesting question. And how the private equity arena is starting to address the continued focus on this on this mysterious space, which is quickly becoming a mainstream staple area for investment. I mean, as a global investment firm, many of our clients have substantial exposure into private equity for this reason, for the return reason. But because it's 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 no longer a secret to a small group of investors, it's really attracting a lot of attention. Right. And, I, and I think GPs and LPs are really thinking about how do they incorporate some of what they're hearing on the political landscape into how they invest or how they how they provide information about how they invest. And on that point, when you talk to LPs who are limited partners who are public pensions and university endowments and others, how much more sensitive are they to political issues, to what's in the underlying portfolio? We've seen people divest from funds that mm-hmm. say invest in gun manufacturers or other types. Is that just the new normal here? It is. I mean, and I think of it within the context of ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And that is, that's something that we've really seen with LPs on, in Europe, really, firmly embedding within their own investment process. And it's come across the Atlantic, and not that it wasn't here to begin with, right. but I think it's really starting to gain a head of steam around, we want to incorporate this into how, how we look at an investment opportunity. And then we're also asking the GPs, have you completely assessed the risk around not just the investment risk and am I going to earn my return, but really about from an environmental, social and governance aspect, have you identified all of the risks here and mitigated them or, or incorporated them fully into your investment process? So fascinating. Andrea Auerbach, Global Head of Private Investments at Cambridge Associates, based up in Boston, here with us in New York today. Great to have you in studio with us. Great perspective, right? And we talk about how much this industry is growing, certainly the private equity world, and how it's impacting uh, investments overall. Jazzy little music for us as we get in to talk about Business Week. Tell the weekend's coming. Economics. It is coming, (laughs) coming fast. Kathleen Hayes, Global Economics and Policy Editor for Bloomberg. She's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. And Tom Orlick, Chief Economist for Bloomberg Economics, he's on the phone from our bureau down in the nation's capital. Tom, I want to start with you because you have a terrific piece uh, that you are cited in today in the on the Bloomberg terminal, very well read. And it's basically about the global economy and maybe the worst is behind us. It's very optimistic. What do you make? So um, I think we're clearly in a moment of elevated uncertainty, Jason. Um, There's contrary indicators. Uh, On the one hand, U.S. jobs looked really weak in February. On the other hand, unemployment is low. Wages continue to rise. Looking on the other side of the world, China's credit growth has accelerated a lot, but we haven't seen that pass through to the real economy yet. So let's not understate 
the uncertainty at this this precise moment in time. That said, if we had to come down on one side or another, we think the balance of recent evidence, looking at China credit, looking at some stronger industrial output numbers coming out of Europe is actually on the side of stabilization. Um, so our view is that we're going to see a trough for global growth in the first quarter and a very modest acceleration going forwards. Well, and what's interesting, Kathleen, come on in on this conversation. I know you're watching, obviously, today's economic news here in the U.S. and the bond market. But I do wonder, you know, whether or not we'll start to see some momentum for the conversation or the thinking that, you know, maybe we've hit the bottom in terms of what's going on globally in terms of growth specifically, and maybe things start to improve later on. Or do you just feel like it's just too early? Well, I think Tom really encapsulated what I think is is the best way to see this, especially if you consider that maybe, you know, markets and sentiment can swing, swing so wildly. Oh, my God, we're going to have a recession and it's been going on so long. And yes, we did certainly the ECB, European Central Bank, when they cut their forecast mm-hmm. so much after the OECD reduced their forecast so much, particularly for Europe, that you can see how it fueled the sentiment. But just because you stabilize does not mean that you're moving ahead with any great pace. And I think that's going to be the question first half and maybe even by the second second half of this year is, does the economy still remain somewhat vulnerable to a shock? Because recessions usually don't start without some kind of a shock, even when the economy is slowed down. And the, the Bank of Japan is wrapping up its two-day meeting. Um, they'll be Friday in Asia, tonight uh, in the U.S. And they are expected, number one, to reduce their growth forecasts a bit. Industrial production has looked bad. Boy, the machine orders were really weak. Mm-hmm. Um, and And they may they probably won't hit it monetary easing i don't think but that's what people are looking for and that's one more thing that could remind the world right. perhaps that maybe the good thing it reminds them of is people are going to stay very easy and very dovish for a while right. no doubt about it tom come on in though on what you're seeing globally because i think for a while we were all worried certainly about what's going on in china in terms of growth slowdown and we got some some data points overnight uh germany we were we were kind of thrown by as well what are we seeing as of late So I think you put your finger on it, Carol. Uh, China and Europe uh, are the two big concerns. Um, China, uh, we got some numbers overnight. We got the big data download for the first two months of the year. Um, It was pretty disappointing. Industrial output came in weaker than expected. Um, Our view, though, um, is that it's the credit numbers that you have to watch for China. Credit leads the cycle in China. Credit growth was up 25% year on year in the first two months of 2019. We think that's going to start passing through into stronger uh, activity in the real economy going forwards. Um, Turning to Europe, it's a complex story. There's continued concerns about a stall in Germany. But looking at the industrial output numbers uh, across the major economies for January, we see signs of pretty solid uptick. Um, And that supports our view that, yes, Europe's weak. Yes, Europe's in a soft patch. um, But we're not going to see a a bigger, more structural deterioration. And of course, Tom, the slowdown in China is so important to the rest of Asia, Mm -hmm. right? That's one reason why we're seeing presumably fewer exports, less production in Japan. Pam, you lived and worked in China. You're still following it very closely. How tricky is this balance for the government, for the People's Bank of China, to boost the credit and, and show the kind of numbers they showed in, in the report you just mentioned and not put too much juice into the equities market? 
yes, yeah, so this is the this is the great challenge for China. This is the tightrope that which they continue to to walk perilously across. Um, on the one hand, there's a pressing need to support growth and employment right now. On the other hand, they've got all of this debt on the corporate sector balance sheet, all of this debt on the local government balance sheet. They have a history of bubbles in the equity market. I'm sure we all remember that terrible equity market crash they had in 2015. Um, and so the circle they're trying to square is how do we give the economy just enough support without adding to those more serious structural problems? The evidence from the last few weeks, though, including a big speech from President Xi Jinping, where he really hammered the point about stabilizing growth, is that the emphasis now, the policy emphasis, is pretty clearly on the growth side of the equation. And I do... Th- And I do think, Kathleen, that right, the central banks, the global central banks have really shown that when things start to get a little sketchy, they somehow come in with some type of policy maneuver to kind of help out China. It goes even further, right, because you've got the government working on things. Sure, sure, sure. But I think it's partly it's what a central bank is supposed to do, though, right? They're supposed to help maintain financial stability. I still don't believe there's a put at the Federal Reserve. I think they let stocks fall a lot last year before they stepped in. But when stocks got dangerously volatile. And I think the, the, the China People's Bank of China, there was already a little, little move, right, Tom, late last week where they kind of showed their hand like, you can buy some stocks, but this, this frothiness, we don't want to repeat of 2015, 2016. All right. Just want to bring you one quick headline before we wrap this conversation, which is Rent-A-Center, which had been the subject of a buyout by Vintage Capital Management, uh, canceling uh, they. The basically they had canceled the deal over a technicality. A judge finding that that was cool. They can cancel it. They don't have to go through uh, with the buyout. That stock, Carol, trading up about three percent now uh, in the aftermath of right. that decision. Up as high as about eight percent, but then coming off that that high. Hey, folks, thank you so much, Kathleen Hayes, global economics and policy editor at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Do catch her on Daybreak Asia tonight at six p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. And our thanks to Tom Orlick as well, Chief Economist at Bloomberg Economics on the phone from our Washington, D.C. Bureau. I love things like this. You know, here we have these big global macro stories, whether it's U.S.-China trade, whether it's Brexit. In the meantime, judges are making decisions. Companies are buying companies and they're moving ahead. We'll get some earnings after the closing bell, Broadcom and Oracle, which we'll go through. You know, kind of the world goes on. It does. So check out newsstands right now, and you'll see that the cover story for Bloomberg Business Week is about Facebook and how it's finding it pretty hard to clean up its toxic content. Let's get into this story with our reporter who follows Facebook so closely. Sarah Fryer is technology reporter at Bloomberg News. She's joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. And then right next to me, Joel Weber, our Bloomberg Business Week editor in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Story uh, studio excuse me, in New York. Sarah, let's kick it off with you. You had to remind us that one year ago was the Cambridge Analytica scandal. It feels like it was years ago. Um, <laughs> and yet... Remind us about that and then what's kind of changed with Facebook cleaning up its content. So a year ago was when, uh, around when Zuckerberg came on stage at uh, at the congressional hearing, I, should, I guess I should say to the podium at the congressional hearing, 
and said, we are taking a broader view of our responsibility for what happens on Facebook. Now, he wasn't just talking about data, which was the problem at heart of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, but he was talking about overall, all these things that you dislike about Facebook that you think we should be responsible for, now we agree with you. The problem is, in the last year, as they've ramped up their resources for responding to these issues, it's been very reactionary. It's Even though they've invested in it, it's still been under-resourced. And we're seeing these big gaps uh, in, in their enforcement that users are noticing and, and being very upset about. Uh, Sarah, this is Joel. What did we learn about uh, Facebook's sort of content uh, policing from your, the reporting you got out of Sri Lanka? What we learned, Facebook was seeing for years complaints from people in Sri Lanka that the content that was being spread on Facebook, the misinformation, was leading to ethnic tension, in some cases violence. They didn't do anything about it until the government shut down the website in the country when violence escalated. And that got their attention, That got their attention, right? That's a business problem. And so the company then dispatched someone to try to figure out what the problem was. The problem was that they actually didn't have a rule that disallowed the kind of content that was spreading because they don't think it should be their job to, to say what is real or fake on Facebook. And what this underscores is just the company is structured in such a way that they want to create rules that are scalable to their entire user base that they can dispatch to uh, their many thousands of content moderators around the world so that they can really quickly look at a post when it's flagged by a Facebook user as as bad, that they can quickly look at it and say, should this or should this not be on Facebook? When there's not a rule for whatever the bad thing is, Facebook just says, oh, this isn't against our community standards, which is why we all get so frustrated when we report something as hate speech or as harassment or whatever, and Facebook says, oh, this is not against our standards, because there isn't a rule about it. And so, Sarah, help us understand the context of this intervening year, because the hits just keep on coming, not in a good way for Facebook and for Mark Zuckerberg. He comes out more recently with something that feels like an existential shift uh, in Facebook's strategy. And then we have a big outage yesterday. He- help us understand how this fits into the broader narrative here. Are you getting tired of Zuckerberg's manifestos? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Never. it has just been, uh, you know, uh, this this effort to try to show the public that they're being thoughtful about these problems. However, it's a lot of vagary and it's a lot of promises. You know, Facebook has has set itself up for this year with so many promises that it won't be able to deliver on maybe ever, right? They say they're going to help clean up their platform. They're going to give users more control over their data. They're going to, to you know, coordinate with all of these regulators and various governments that are looking into them. Um, it's going to be a year of more and more promises and posturing. And to that point about the the big post from a couple of weeks ago from Zuckerberg saying that he's going to try to solve the Cambridge Analytica issue by pivoting in the future builds to content, to sharing on Facebook that is a lot more private and encrypted that not even Facebook can see. Now, that might help with their data problem, but on the other side of the coin is this content problem that we were just talking about. All of these uh, you know, instances of terrorism content, drug sales, a child pornography, extremist uh, language around, around race relations, 
all of this stuff is going to be able to thrive in an encrypted environment. And Zuckerberg even acknowledges that. And he says, right. oh, we don't really know how to fix that. And just to correct you a little bit there, Sarah, that privacy memo was Thursday, not several weeks oh ago. It was li- li- and which gets to like my it. point, which is, you know, Facebook is a company that is not that old. And you think about all the various lives this company has yeah. already lived. I mean, like, not that long ago, Zuckerberg, everyone was like, is this guy a presidential ca- candidate? That's it was right. like That was like a whole other life ago. That's right, right because he toured around the country right. yeah. and was meeting all the users like, and all the photos. But, but Sarah, the thing that um, that I also wanted to bring back there because you you hit on it was talk about what we've learned about the opioid problem and Facebook's role in that. We only got about twenty seconds here, twenty five seconds. It has become so easy for people to sell drugs on Instagram via the hashtags. And when we think about drug problem on on the internet, we think about the dark web. But really, these social media platforms are the place where the coordination takes place. And that's a big issue. And to be fair, the argument that Facebook often puts out is they don't want to be censoring stuff. You know, what's the balance between all of this? It's a great read. So much in the story. Sarah Fryer, check it out, everyone. Uh, The cover story of the magazine that's on newsstands now. Technology reporter at Bloomberg News. Inner 960 Studio in San Francisco. And our thanks, as always, to Joel Weber, our editor of Bloomberg Business. We catch more of Business Week on the weekend on radio and TV. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. We've just got a few minutes left, roughly 11 minutes left in today's trading session. Equities kicking around a little bit off our highs and lows of the session. Mixed trade, little changes overall on this Thursday. Let's get into it, though, with Hank Smith. He's co-chief investment officer at Haverford Trust, $7.9 billion in assets under management. Hank with us from Radnor, Pennsylvania. Uh, Hank, nice to have you here once again uh, with Jason and myself. Tell me a little bit about the market environment. What kind of cues are you taking or where are you taking your cues, especially as we're waiting for some big macro decisions to be decided? We're kind of in that in-between era uh, when it comes to earnings. So I'm just curious what you're focusing on. Yeah, Carol, uh, good to be with you. And I think you're exactly right in terms of uh, macro. And we took care of one macro issue, and that was a Federal uh, Federal Reserve uh, monetary policy that uh, looked to be way too restrictive in uh, the latter part of 2018, and now they are on the sideline. Now, the next key piece of macro is getting a China trade deal and start bringing down tariffs, the steel and aluminum tariffs. Forget about the European auto tariffs. Uh, get the new NAFTA uh, signed. And if that happens, you're going to see CEO confidence and business confidence spike right back up, resulting in business investment, which uh, we have pent up demand because for most of this 10 year expansion, there's been very little business investment. And you could actually see the economy accelerate uh, into the second half of 19. This also would play very well if the president is desirous of being a two-term president. So 
how big an if is what you just laid out because what that assumes is that the Chinese and the U.S. really come to the table in a meaningful way. It assumes that this Democratic Congress is going to pass uh, NAFTA 2.0, the UMSCA or USMCA, excuse me, um, and all those other trade deals. We had the president talking about a new trade deal that's going to be negotiated with the U.K. How optimistic that all of that can get to yes. Well, again, uh, I, I think we are optimistic because this is the key for his reelection. He needs a strong economy through 19 into 2020. This is the only lever that he has control of. He can't get any more tax cuts with uh, the new Congress. Uh, you're not going to get a big ramp up in spending uh, from from these levels. So, really, if he can uh, negotiate trade deals. And I don't think they have to be great deals. They just need to be done, claim victory. Both sides can claim victory. And it will take away the uncertainty that has really stalled business investment that we saw pick up quite nicely in the first half of 2018 and then dried up, so to speak, in the second half as uh, the trade uh, trade. Uh, potential trade war created uncertainty. And I think it also helps explain the slowdown in the global economy uh, as well. So this could be good, not just for the U.S. economy, but for the global economy. So we're optimistic, but look, at the same time, we have to say it is a risk. Um, Perhaps uh, the Robert Lighthousers and Peter Navarros of the world rule the day and and President Trump digs his heels in. But Hank, if I can just jump in for a second, are we that simplistic that... uh, we have an opportunity to do a really smart U.S.-China deal, and that's what most folks say, that this is, you know, that, that President Trump has kind of got the upper hand at this point because of some of the troubles and the slowdown in China. So does it is it really that the case that CEOs, even if it's not a great U.S.-China deal, they'll just be glad it's off the table? Well, again, I think this whole near-bear market that we had in the fourth quarter was self-induced by um, misappropriate comments from the Fed and trade rhetoric that actually turned into tariffs and the potential for a trade war. And we've taken care of that uh, that first step the Fed did, mm-hmm. uh, and now we take care of this. And I think you've got um, a, a growing economy, uh, corporate profits well, that were obviously not will not be as strong as they were in 18, but they'll still be mid to high single digits, provided we get that acceleration in the second half. And stocks are are fairly valued uh, right. at, at this point. Hank Smith, co chief investment officer at Haverford Trust, overseeing about 7.9 billion dollars down there in Radnor, Pennsylvania. Always good to catch up. Thanks so much for joining us. I just wonder about you pretty know, bullish, is, right? Well, yes, but I think it's you know an opportunity to do some deals better, smarter, be better. We always talk about that about in terms of U.S. China trade, and I just wonder if we're going to miss that opportunity just because. Everybody is now starting to focus on the 2020 election, right? And everybody's thinking about that. About that, it's the economy, stupid, right? And the president has to be thinking about financial markets. I did not, but okay. I'm just talking about that great slogan, okay? Political slogan, but I mean, that has become 
the focus for everyone. And I, and I think he's just going to want to get something done. Well, and going back to what we were talking we'll about, this 10 to this 10 plus number of uh, folks who are running on the Democratic side of the ledger, are they going to be able to make a, a strong economic case? Because clearly it was a strong economic case, at least for some voters that President Trump made during the 2016 election. Before we get to this, because I don't think we're going to get a what? chance to talk about it. We did have a great time last night at the Paul oh, Rabel yes. Foundation. I did want to mention that because it's fantastic. Uh, he's going to join us. Paul Rabel, of course, the number one, the, the, the million-dollar man in the lacrosse world, starting a new league. He's going to be with us on Monday when we're broadcasting live uh, from the Bloomberg Sports Summit. We did get a chance to catch up with him last night at his annual foundation dinner. His auction. Here in New York, his yeah. auction. Um, well, we, he's got a foundation. What I thought was interesting is, right, we have these individuals and we see them as kind of the sports celebrity star that they are, but he talked a lot about his time in school and some of the tough times he had in terms of learning and how sports really made a difference for him and he's hoping to give it back you're smiling at me i'm smiling just because we were we got a chance to catch up with his parents as well who are great he's a you know he is partners in this new venture with his brother mike rabel who comes out of private equity and real estate world uh it's all happening i mean we were talking about this tour that's launching this summer the premier lacrosse league uh it's going to start in boston it's going to come here to new york they just announced today it's going to go down to atlanta chicago uh and so we'll see where that goes. And what's interesting, too, is it's not just about growing the sport of lacrosse. We talk a lot about the business of sports. We talk about owners. We talk about all the money that's going there. This is a disruptor in the way professional sports may be going forward. Well, especially, too, because one of the things that's a priority for him is taking care of his players at this point. And I also thought it was fascinating that he locked up some media rights. Yeah. Pretty early on, so uh, it's been an incredibly see. smart uh, rollout. So we're going to catch up with them more on Monday. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.